You're listening to Invisible Malaysia. In this episode, journalist, filmmaker, and organizer of the annual Refugee Festival, Mahi Ramakrishnan, talks about refugees and the arts and reflects on Malaysian responses towards advocacy efforts for refugees. We also talk a little about refugees and human trafficking and how those two issues intersect. I hope you find this episode useful. Hi everyone, my name is Nadine Faisal. I'm an intern at Dinaganita. Dinaganita is a human rights NGO that promotes and protects the rights of migrant workers, trafficked individuals, refugees, women and children in Malaysia. And you are listening to or watching, if you're on YouTube, Invisible Malaysia, a podcast where we interview members of the refugee communities in our country and also interview experts in the field to find out more about refugee communities as well as the issues that they face. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Mahi Ramakrishnan. She is no stranger to being interviewed, are you? Not quite, but you know, I don't understand why you still get a little bit nervous. Yeah, well yeah, this is like, I'm a green interviewer, <laughs> so yeah. She is an investigative journalist as well as a filmmaker. She also founded the Refugee Film Fest in 2016 and that's it's actually been... the refugee festival oh sorry the refugee festival no yeah. film no uh-huh. we do have film screenings though oh, okay. but it's a refugee festival uh-huh. and it uh, creates a platform for the refugees to voice uh, their you know to to give out their to voice out what they want to voice out and also acts as a, pla- as a platform to connect them with the host communities as well mm. and you know because it showcases their talent it's our way of showing that the refugees are much more than the persecution that they yeah. have experienced yeah, yeah i respect that so much so uh, in your own words i've given a little spiel i guess you could say but in your own words could you tell us about yourself um yeah she has said everything <laughs> <laughs> to you what's your most important work or um you know, when I uh, when I um, started as a journalist, I think 25 years ago, easily, I thought that I was going to change the world. And then two years later, I realized, oops, that's not going to happen. And then I realized that as a journalist, my most important work was to actually put out the information out there so that when people make choices, they actually make informed choices. And that's what I try to do. And uh, when I do investigative films and investigative journalism, I try to you know, put stories out there, stories which otherwise would never be told, you know, issues which otherwise would never be known. I, I think that, you know, that's, that, that's so far the best thing that I have actually done. Mm, and in your career, in your work, you've, you've, you've gone to the countries themselves where the things are happening. Like you've gone to Myanmar, you've been on the border to try to buy a weapon, etc. <laughs> I watched your TED talk. <laughs> uh, you've experienced covering so many things. What made you decide to focus some of your energy into covering or advocating for the refugee community here? Uh, when I was uh, working for BBC as well as uh, Press TV out of Iran, I did quite a bit of work on the on the refugee communities, particularly focusing on the Rohingya at that point in time. And I was doing uh, features as well as news reports. And then when I started getting to know the Rohingya more and more, I realized that the issue was just so dizzyingly complex. It wasn't easy to tell uh, a story. It wasn't a straightforward story in the first mm-hmm. place, right? Mm-hmm. So um, what happened is that I think I kind of got really a bit involved which again doesn't speak well for me as a journalist because the first thing they tell you is you know there has to be uh, like a separation between the issue and the reporter but you know you're human so I kind of got really emotionally involved and then I think uh, what 
12 years later I'm really hooked on to it and then I started talking to more and more refugee communities and then I think there was something that connected with what I wanted to do so I now work on um, organizing communities creating platforms for them to speak up because more often than not we hear CSOs and NGOs and non-profit organizations speaking for and on behalf mm. of the communities so we thought okay let's create platforms where the refugees can speak up for themselves we just really wanted to hear more refugee voices so I do that and I also do advocacy by uh, working with uh, members of parliament uh, such as Charles Santiago for example to further advance uh, advocacy on the on the refugees. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm great that our conversation has headed in this direction because I would love to find out also for our viewers um, and listeners uh, the landscape. I guess you could say uh, you could say in uh, advocacy like CSOs, NGOs. What what are all these acronyms? FBOs. And all, yeah. Well, you have the non-governmental organizations, you have the non-profit organizations, you have the community-based organizations, That's the civil CBO. society, okay. yeah, and the civil society organizations. Yes. yes, but I think that what is really important is for us to create more and more avenues, platforms, opportunities, chances for refugees, not just refugees, you know, for migrant workers, trafficked persons, stateless persons for the survivors themselves to speak mm. because you know sometimes uh, it's it's a it's a very thin line yeah. you may think that you know the issue so well that you know a particular community so well and you think that you know what they want mm. but more often than not when you listen to them and when you ask them to to advocate for themselves you'll be surprised to know that the things that they want and that which you think they wanted may not necessarily be the same mm -hmm. and also you know uh, working with uh, the refugee communities has taught me so much about you know holding on to hope and courage and determination mm -hmm. because you know that's how they survive yeah. yeah so I suppose it's like what you are pushing for and what you said most recently is nothing about them should be without them exactly yeah yeah so that's a principle that we hold dear to in this production so right. that's why we'll be interviewing members of refugee communities directly because they can speak for themselves exactly yeah all right so i, I wanted to ask you why is building platform uh, organizing the refugee festival why is that necessary what in your experience are the prevailing ideas that malaysians have about refugees See, we are a very racist and xenophobic society. It saddens me to say this, but that's the truth. And, um, you know, like for example, uh, now we have a new government. And uh, even before, uh, there were some ministers and uh, even the former prime minister himself and now the current prime minister and also the foreign minister. You know, they talk about giving work opportunities for refugees. But when you look at the comments from Malaysians, they're frightening because it goes like this, you know, put them on the boat, let them die at sea. You know kill them why should we give them opportunities we we toppled a corrupt regime Malaysia is for Malaysians those kinds of things now you have a choice you can get really angry with Malaysians and stay away or you can tell yourself that you know people are always afraid of something that they don't really know in its entirety and you can take it upon yourself to actually connect these two groups so that one can get to know the other better mm. I have done this I'm speaking from experience here because from the refugee festival we actually I did a community-based festival where we took the refugee uh, the, the artists from different refugee communities and took them to the Nigel Gardner uh, plantation mm. and we got the plantation folks to come and listen to poetry presentations 
and music and dancing and they were just first they were quite shocked because they didn't really know what being a refugee was all about why they actually were fleeing and then they were able to sympathize and empathize with these people and so many of them came up to me and these are the poor guys I'm talking about right came up to me and said Mahi we we want to do something can I give some money you know these people are just like us and you know they've got the same you know the, the color of their blood is also red and look at the kind of experiences and the persecution that they have gone through and you know it's really upon us now to try and do something for them mm -hmm. so you see the narrative changes mm -hmm. and some of them were even talking to me about going to their elected representatives mm -hmm. to talk about including refugees you know when it comes to job opportunities and stuff like that so and also in economic participation so you know it's really imminent that for example the refugee festival actually creates platforms for Malaysians to to come and get to know the refugees better and you know this is really important because at the end of the day the refugees live amongst us and we need to get to know them we need to embrace them and we need to accept and, and celebrate diversity and we need to understand one that all refugees can contribute effectively to any given society mm -hmm. if opportunities are provided for yeah, i was talking recently with ms in the same car earlier about the fact that the resettlement rate is only one percent right really globally uh, and also many refugees are fleeing persecution uh, and conflict so that's why it's a responsibility for us to you know care about and provide for these communities because they will be they are not will be they are a semi-permanent feature of Malaysian exactly. society right yeah. okay um, you mentioned Nigel Gardner plantation just to clarify where is that actually now that you asked me we got on the north-south highway and we got there it's about like 45 minutes away from KL and uh, you know uh, it's largely the Indian community mm. and then you also have the Malay community mm. but it, it was interesting for me because most of the Malays were actually speaking Tamil Oh wow, now I'm going to Alright, so we've been talking about um, providing a platform for refugees to speak about themselves and advocate them for themselves. Uh, organizing the Refugee Festival and also in addition to all of your other work, uh, what has your experience been in terms of the response? Is it encouraging? Is it frustrating? Have there been lessons that you've learned throughout these years? The biggest lesson is to start looking for the money way before the refugee festival because it's so difficult to get funding yeah. and you know for us uh, of course our our budget is is open and it's accountable mm -hmm. and 85% uh, of the money that we actually ask for goes towards uh, paying the artists from the def different refugee communities. Mm -hmm. We may not be able to pay them commercial rates, mm -hmm. but we pay them uh, reasonable, decent rates. Mm -hmm. And it's also our way of saying that, you know, there has to be gainful employment as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why the Refugee Festival, right? Just now you asked this question and I didn't answer it. Because, you know, uh, performing arts is seen to be non-threatening. Mm -hmm. So I can still talk about difficult issues, you know, using a non-threatening platform. Yeah, so you know really about looking for the funding but you know what is really encouraging is to see lots of students come university students researchers coming together of course non-governmental organization representatives and others coming through uh, but also diplomats themselves taking a more uh, a bigger interest and this time around we also had members of parliament you know who were more interested in the refugee uh, festival and to get to know more about some of the work that we were actually doing uh, with the refugees this year it was uh, brilliant for me because I worked with this uh, poet from Afghanistan, Masuma Tawakoli. Mm. 
one day she came up to me uh, with this, pe uh, this, this pieces of paper, A4 paper, and they were all illustrations. And I was like, what is this? And then she said, I'm illustrating my experience under the Taliban. And I looked at it and I thought, my God, this is, this is incredible. So I went to the Canadian uh, High Commission and they looked at it and they were like, this is brilliant work. So they actually helped us to publish her illustrations. Mm. So they were put together into a book and uh, I wrote to the illustrations and I had a, a Persian uh, guy, uh, a Persian student, an Iranian student, actually translate uh, from Persian to uh, English because Masuma was explaining the meaning behind each and every illustration. Mm -hmm. And it, is, uh, it was incredible because here you have a woman speaking up through her, her, her artwork and her husband uh, is, in, is really encouraging. And you know, it kind of helps us to shift from the very traditional narrative that we hold about Afghan women, that they all belong in the kitchen or that's where they actually are, that they can't voice out. And it also shows a very clear picture that while many of them can be in that situation, things can change if opportunities are given for the for Afghan women as well. And it was powerful to see Masuma, who is so tiny and petite and soft-spoken, to actually come, uh, you know, sit at a panel following the launch of her book and talk about it. Mm. You know, it was, um, uh, it, it was really refreshing for us yeah. to, to see that. So are there many stories like that in terms of the people who contribute to the refugee festival, the refugees themselves? Yeah, the refugees. So Masuma is one of them. Last year we had uh, a group of poets who actually published uh, a book on, on poetry. Yeah. And uh, what they did was they hand wrote the poetry in their mother tongue mm. and then it was translated into English. So the handwritten work in their mother tongue as well as the English translation were published side by side. Mm. So what it actually does for the refugees is that it gives them a sense of control, it changes the narrative, it also allows them to control the way the conversation about them is being is being held. And it's very empowering. Yeah. Let's talk more about these people who contribute to the refugee festival. Like because I suppose you would, that kind of breaks perceptions among Malaysians that I have encountered that refugees are uneducated, refugees are, you know, like economic migrants, they might be dirty, they only do low-skilled jobs. So is that true? What is the, what is the refugee community like in your experience? That might be true to an extent, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, really incredibly. Um quick when it comes to branding people, right? We love to brand people, label them, put them in the box and hope that they actually stay that way. Now, are there different uh, different refugees, you know, with different skills, different educational mm -hmm. background? Of course. Mm -hmm. Are all Malaysians PhD holders? Are all Malaysians educated? No. Mm -hmm. And likewise, in every society and in different communities, you see the same thing. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, this year, we helped to break a stereotype about the Rohingya who are seen to be occupying the lowest of the social stratification amongst uh, the refugee communities. Mm. So I was in Penang and uh, we discovered these Rohingya musicians and we brought them to KL. And this year around what we did was we got all the performers from different refugee communities to actually perform with Malaysian artists as well. So the musicians performed with Seshatri, who plays the flute. He's he's a Malaysian Indian. Seshatri. So uh, it was incredible. And people who were there, they looked at me and they were like, they were filming and then they turned and they looked at me and they said, oh my God, Mahi, you have actually changed the conversation around the Rohingya because they were seen to have no performing arts uh, because, you know, and they don't really have something that can be defined as 
their their own food or clothing or something like that and they also in uh, are like unable to articulate that and that's that's understandable because of the decades of persecution i mean when you're running trying to save your life or trying to stay alive then you know arts and performing arts is the least that you actually is the last thing that you actually think about so in that sense you know we are really happy that we were able to change stereotypes and we are really happy that this year we were able to call for integration and that was picked up by the media and they actually said that you know the refugee festival this year calls for integration because we had malaysian musicians malaysian dancers i mean imagine somali dance troops and yemeni dance troops dancing with this uh, odc dancer who is based in malaysia but who is from india it was it was just incredible you know people were swooning with uh, pride and and people were like really happy you know and i'm i'm also happy to see that the refugee festival is kind of growing it's taking its own shape and i've got a plan for next year but now we have a a, a committee a refugee committee a refugee festival committee which comprises of uh, refugees from different uh, communities and for next year the festival director is actually Saleh Sepas oh, who is the Afghan theater yeah. director so i really look forward to learning more and working with him mm -hmm. but i do have uh, an idea and have not even shared it with the with the committee you yet you heard it here first <laughs> yes yes there is an idea you heard it so i'm i'm hoping that we can pull it off but uh, yeah i'll it maybe what i will what do is, is what i'll do is once we are ready to share it to the media i'll come to you first oh wow okay invisible <laughs> malaysia will be your source <laughs> yes. okay so uh, yeah salis sepas he's the director of parastu theatre yes. right he's yeah. a, he's he specializes in uh, uh, theatre of the oppressed mm. and uh, he strongly believes in uh, um you know women's liberation and you know mm -hmm. he's all about empowering women mm -hmm. and uh, his wife uh, works with him and she acts in his uh, theaters theater place yeah he's a refugee himself, yeah. he's he's a refugee refugee himself. Mm -hmm. who came to malaysia well yeah. back yeah. Ah, I see, 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 see. Uh, so going back to um your experience with the refugee festival and also advocacy on other platforms so it sounds like the conversation around refugee issues is becoming better would you say that or do you say we're still at that same at the same rung of the ladder where we're still battling negative stigma etc well uh we are still battling negative stigma and we will continue because there will always be pockets uh of people in different societies that just want to prove you wrong they just want to hold on to their own uh what do you call it their own viewpoints who you know who wouldn't have even have the time to listen to what you have got to say but what is really interesting is to see young people such as yourself you know coming on board wanting to talk about the refugees wanting to know about the refugees and you know and we see more and more young people coming on board for someone like me it's really heartwarming it really makes me incredibly happy to know that when i am done that the work will continue okay yeah we'll try to keep it on Another question that I wanted to ask you is I have heard some um some I guess discomfort I suppose one thing that the refugees are afraid of is people coming to see their cultural production their art because of their status as refugees have you heard this sort of feedback and do you think that uh there should be some effort to distance themselves uh, refugees as artists with their I suppose a victimizing label as refugees. Um I've not just heard this but uh one of the poets actually came to me and said that mm. uh he may not want to perform mm. 
in the next refugee festival because you know he's being labeled as uh, a refugee poet mm. so and that is this happened uh, early this year mm. before the refugee festival mm. so it really got me thinking and then you know I realized that when we first um, introduced the artists as refugee artists that was because the word refugee really has to be out there it really has to be staring in everyone's faces mm. because so that people take note of the fact that we have refugees you know please go and ask around and see how many people actually you know know about refugees know that we actually have refugees there's so many who don't really know that but can we so that is why we had integration this year we call for integration as a way of diluting the word refugee mm. as a way of you know like uh, not branding them as refugee artists but as artists from different communities so I think that we are at a point where we are ready to do to do that but again you know you can't really run away from uh, from the refugee narrative as well all I think is that there has to be a fine balance mm -hmm. where you don't have to brand them as refugee artists but you cannot run away from the fact that they are refugees and that they do have a history and to me that's powerful yeah I suppose it's I suppose the thing for us Malaysians to take away is that is not to emphasize the refugee-ness like emphasize their personhood and their talent exactly and then sure they're refugees but that doesn't mean that's not their all-encompassing identity and I think that's why there's discomfort <laughs> among the refugees with the label refugees all right thank you uh, we're back from the break so you've done a lot of work on human trafficking uh, I wanted to know whether the worlds of trafficking and refugees intersect Obviously, you know, it's like, it's just so interconnected. Mm. Actually, you know, trafficking has been happening for a long, long time. I still remember in 2001, I did a, a story for Time magazine where I uh, bought a Smith & Wesson from a Thai army camp in Yala. You brought a what? A Smith & Wesson, it's a gun, uh, from the Thai army camp in Yala, together with, uh, I mean, my fixer was, a, was an arm smuggler. And uh, I did that because I wanted to talk about the arms smuggling route in Southeast Asia mm -hmm. and how the Thai army was actually supplying weapons to the militants around the region mm -hmm. and, and outside the region. So, you know, I don't believe in armchair journalism. So I thought I'll just go mm -hmm. ahead and do it. And I did it. And uh, when we were coming back, Din had a call on his phone and he said, oh, Din I have to, the fixer. The, the fixer. Okay. Uh, he said, "Oh, I have to go back to uh, I have to go back to Yala tomorrow because I need to go to Chiang Mai or wherever because I need to get girls for some people and stuff like that." Mm -hmm. So all of this was happening, and what I didn't realize is that he's actually talking about trafficking because the word trafficking was not in the vocabulary in two thousand and one. Yeah, what is trafficking? I don't think we've defined it yet. Actually, uh, trafficking is when you forcefully take people from one place to the other mm. now when you look at trafficking and refugees it need not necessarily be trafficking all the way through because you know tra because the refugees have no choice they are held in such precarious situation that you know like for example in Burma they either die or they leave mm. right mm. if you stayed back you'll die mm. so they are forced to leave mm. and they actually go to a person and say I want to leave and they willfully jump into the boat now that is human smuggling but when does it become trafficking? It becomes trafficking when they are held in army camps along Malaysia-Thai border and when money is being extorted or when and then they're sexually abused because they cannot pay that kind of money to secure their release. That becomes trafficking. Mm. Right? So, you know, when you look at a when you look at what's happening now in Cox's Bazaar, 
with the threat of them being transferred to a sinking island and then with the oh, ongoing really? yeah on the ongoing talks between Bangladesh and Burma wanting to send them back uh, to Burma. Just a moment, Cox's Bazaar is the refugee camp, camp in, in Bangladesh. Bangladesh. Right. Okay. So and and then also the monsoon season and the fact that you have more than a you have more than 1 million people there and resources and logistics and infrastructure is being fought by all of them you know makes it very difficult for the rohingya to continue living there now is malaysia a paradise obviously not because here they still can't work they can't send their children to school or get proper access to healthcare but is it way better than cox's bazaar obviously so so will they leave obviously they will and they will leave and they will tell the traffickers yes we have money and the traffickers also know that they don't have money but the traffickers also know that they have relatives and friends in malaysia so when they are held in trafficking camps, they'll give them phone phones so that they can make phone calls and secure and secure the money to secure their release. Mm. So, you know, people like you and me, we look at uh, refugees and we say, okay, we really need to empower them. We need to embrace them. We need to celebrate diversity. We need to create opportunities for them. Traffickers and human smugglers look at them and say, oh my God, I can make a thousand ringgit, 800 ringgit, 850 ringgit off each of them. Right? Yeah. And it's a multi-billion US dollar industry. Who are these traffickers? Ah, it's that that's another sad thing because 80-85% of the traffickers are Rohingya themselves. Mm. You know, when it happens from uh, from Burma, then you know, then you have 80-85% of the traffickers are from Burma themselves, are Rohingya themselves, and then you have um, the Thais, yeah. and then you have like a handful of Malaysians. That's that's negligible. Yeah. So it's crazy because it's the own people doing this to them. When I did my film two years ago called Bo, which means bright in the Rohingya language. B-O-U. B-O-U. It means bright. I spoke the, to the trafficker and the trafficker is Rohingya himself. Mm. And you know, the traffickers were, were actually holding these girls in trafficking camps, sexually abusing them before they are sold off as child brides to Rohingya men in Malaysia. And then during the research, I found out that the Rohingya men were commissioning child brides through the traffickers themselves. Mm. This is this is you know unfathomable. So it's like a business. It's, it's a business. Definitely a business. It's a business and the lives of children are completely destroyed in the process. Like one of the one of the girls I spoke to told me that she fled Burma when she was about 10 and a half, 11 years old and a year from then she was sexually abused by more than 60 traffickers. Mm. So I mean, what, what do you say about that? Yeah. Right, this brings us to an issue that I like to call complexity. Some kind of uh, resistance that I have encountered in Malaysian society in terms of integrating or providing rights to the refugee communities in Malaysia is the fact that, oh, among refugee communities, there are bad seeds. I was talking about this to Ellis earlier. There are there are Rohingyans who themselves are human traffickers, etc. So how do we deal with this complexity, the fact that, you know, this community that we want to help or that we advocate for to provide their rights, access to education, healthcare, and right to work, how do we deal with the fact that, yeah, they are complex um, and they're not all innocent victims, I suppose you could say. How, how, yeah. I think you look at it uh, issue-based. Mm. You know, there are refugees and there are Rohingya refugees and they need to be given the right to work, education and healthcare. Mm -hmm. That's primary, that's mm -hmm. crucial. And do they need help? Do they not support? Do they need empowerment? Yes, they need all of that and more. And then there are the traffickers. That's mm. another issue. That's mm. a separate issue. Yeah. Just because you have uh, Malaysians who are 
dirty, dangerous, difficult, corrupt, that yeah. doesn't mean that the rest of Malaysia shouldn't be helped. Mm. That doesn't mean a poor person from a village or a poor person or a person who comes from a B40 community, whether it's Malay, Chinese or Indian, you know, need not be helped because, hey, you know what? There are this, this you know, hey, you know what? Because the former Deputy Prime Minister raised, really embezzled money, so we don't need to help Malaysians. I mean, you can't have that kind of an argument. Likewise, you know, this is really about looking at it issue-based. Mm -hmm. The refugees, not just the Rohingya, but all other refugees, they need to be helped. Mm -hmm. and the, their fundamental rights must be given to them mm -hmm. that's a fact looking into enforcement looking into monitoring looking into weeding out corruption uh, and trafficking you know immaterial of who it involves is a different issue mm -hmm. and you know yes the Rohingya are the ones who are actually the traffickers themselves but if you really look at it the motivation is money it's corruption if enforcement officers do not want to be a part of this corrupt system this endemic corrupt system then it's imp it's impossible for the for the for the rohingya to actually work the trafficking route as well and for other traffickers to actually work the route the the reason why they can actually do it is because there are enforcement officers who are complicit and we have got enough report is that what kind of led to remember the one Kalyan grave? Exactly, and Traganita's yeah. uh, the revolving door, yeah. you know, which came out way before the one Kalyan report. Mm. And if I'm not mistaken, I think when I spoke to Ajol, she said that they had notified, uh, you know, the special branch after the the book was the report was launched, and you know, I'm not sure how. Yeah. What was what actually happened after that? Mm, the revolving door is a publication by Traganita about how. Um, the state is complicit in this interaction between refugees and traffickers and how a lot of people fall uh, vulnerable to exploitation etc and how all of these things are interconnected you can get that book through i'll like put a link or something down there <laughs> all right thank you so much mahi i think we're going to bring our conversation to a close uh before we end though i wanted to ask you so what resources would you point to for a malaysian who wants to know more and do more I think Tanaganita has quite a bit of uh, report and publications mm -hmm. as well. And then there are filmmakers, mm -hmm. uh, Zanazli, not just me, but also filmmakers like Zanazli, mm -hmm. who have actually done films on uh, the on the Rohingya. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I think uh, the rest of it is to really look for NGOs and civil society organizations that actually work with uh, not just the Rohingya, but other refugees as well. Mm -hmm. Because I think most of them need volunteers. They do need help. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, what is really lacking in this country where um, refugees are concerned is a research paper mm. or, or rather our research papers, you know, to look at, for example, uh, access to mental health, you know, what is actually trafficking and where it's actually, uh, you know, how prevalent is it, you know, does it still happen, what's going to happen uh, in the future with the Rohingya wanting to leave Cox's Bazaar mm. and also the other conversation that we never have is to really look at the kind of uh, violence that is perpetrated by the Rohingya men to the women and children in a private space for example mm. whether it's in Cox's Bazaar or in their homes in Malaysia you know the prevalence of child rights among the Rohingya mm. community so there are so many things that need to be talked about but some of it we feel that we are inadequate to have those conversations mm. but what is really lacking here is research on the ground both qualitative and quantitative that needs to be done mm -hmm. so i'm sure that we need people we need students to come on board we need so funding we yeah need we also need funding. research funding as well <laughs> so it will be incredible if people can just yeah. google to find out you know which are some of the ngos and cso's that are working mm -hmm. on refugee issues and 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 connect 
with them. That, that, I think that'll be that'll be good. That'll be Your useful. Your NGO is one of them, Beyond Borders. Yeah, it's called Beyond Borders, and you know we are trying to do a, a research looking at the kind of mental health issues, mm. you know, which is prevalent among the refugee community, and we are trying to identify is, is if a set, certain type of mental health issue is prevalent or or is exclusive to certain you know refugee communities mm. and why mm. and when you know when did this happen you know is it when they were in their home countries experiencing the violence mm. in transit or while being in a state of limbo in malaysia or is it you know like a continuum of all of this but hey you know hey you guys the fact remains that we have no money so <laughs> we've been ask. trying to <laughs> we have been trying to get this done so yeah mini tangent i guess where do cso's and ngos get their money from embassies i heard just now or well you know oh god i really have no idea um, i just you know i think i'm sure that there are rich ngos in malaysia and i'm sure that there are the dirt poor ones like beyond borders so it'll be interesting it'll be incredible mm -hmm. if people can help each other if some of the funding can be channeled to organizations which have got uh, expertise that they can work on mm -hmm. and then if these resources logistics can actually be pulled together mm -hmm. but unfortunately i don't really see it happening mm -hmm. because you know um we are, we are not i think at that stage yet and um yeah that's sad yeah all right, thank you so much, Mahi. We're we're at the end of our conversation. Before we stop, any last points to make? No, I think I've already said it all. It's like all about funding, funding, funding. So yeah. let's just hope that you know, since this year is ending, like next year will be better year. That it'll bring us more money, that so that we can actually continue to do the work. But congratulations yeah, thank and so thanks much. for the good work that you do. Thank you so much. Right. You've been listening to Invisible Malaysia a podcast about refugees produced by Dinaganita. Efforts like this rely on support from people like you. Help ensure continued support for marginalized communities by donating to Dinaganita through PayPal at www.dinaganita.net or find our bank information on our Facebook page. This podcast could not have been produced without the help of Dinaganita interns and others, particularly Hawa Hussein and Sandra Lam. I'm Nadine Faisal. Thank you so much for listening.